0: Welcome, everybody, to the Soil Matters Podcast. We were supposed to have Dan Kittredge. He had some interesting things happen this weekend. So we reached out to Tom Landry, and thank goodness the man is amazing. He jumped on here with us. And thank you, Tom. And with that, I'm going to jump in the background. We're going to get Leighton and Av, because they both know Tom, to introduce them. So thanks, guys. We'll see you in
1: a bit. Thanks, Ken. Av, you want to introduce today's guest? Uh oh, Av. He's glitching. This is just. Talking <laughs> about him. We'll just be patient with him. But well, welcome to the show, Tom. Why don't you uh, start by uh, telling us a little bit about yourself, your history, and how you ended up here?
2: Uh, whew, okay. Yeah. Um, I started uh, growing, I'd say, about twelve years ago. Um, just kind of okay. decided it's something I was, you know, curious about, interested about. And um, after I I did my first grow in my basement, I was just, I was just hooked, you know, like the plant just blew me away. Um, And luckily I actually started with organics right away. Um, My dad's a gardener, always gardened organic. We as a family always tried to eat as organic as possible. So for me, I never even thought about uh going synthetic you know a lot of the stories you hear about growers uh that are doing living soil uh you know say well i started with the bottle and this and that but uh actually for me i i um i went right to organics uh discovered uh you know the sub sub cool scene the super soil all that um did a lot of experimenting with that over the years and then when i met you leighton you kind of changed my whole perspective on it you know uh i wanted to start uh, growing in beds and um i thought i was just gonna fill all that with uh potting soil and um you told me about the hor- horizontal system as at first i wasn't sure sounded complicated um etc but um you know, with uh, research and learning more and more about sand, silt, and clay, uh, I realized if it was a no-brainer, a uh, good idea. Um, I even um, call, remember calling Av after our first con- conversation. This would have been uh, about three years ago, and I asked him, like, "What what do you think of um, building horizons in a bed?" and Correct me if I'm wrong, Av, but I think you were th- maybe thinking of creating like amendment layers, right? Which was kind of a thing in the, uh, in the sub-cool super soil uh, scene, you know, like you used to amend the bottom a lot heavier than the top. That was the idea, right? So um, he was like, oh, no, I don't think it's a good idea. But then I, I told him, look, I'm really talking about horizons here, not layers of amendments And, um, you know, it didn't take him too long that I think he, he was on board and, um, you know, luckily, uh, I've known Av, uh, for a while and, you know, we talk once in a while, I'll learn, I learn a lot from him. Um, so I, I often, uh, double check ideas with him that I have like, Hey, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? Um, so that's sort of uh, how I got to where I am right now. I guess I, I skipped the whole part of um, me. Uh, basically, I was I was a professional musician since the age of eighteen, and now I'm going to be uh, 38 soon. Um, and four years ago, my my daughter was born, so I couldn't really live the rock and roll lifestyle anymore. You know playing shows every night till 2 3 a.m getting home at 4 a.m wasn't gonna work out uh and i knew that um my my you know like music was my passion but it became my job so i i'm the kind of guy that i need to have like a hobby passion right so that totally became growing weed so um where, you know, I was going to have a daughter, I had to get things under control. So I thought I'm going to get licensed, right? So I'm going to, I'm going to apply for a a micro cultivation license um, from Health Canada, um, which I did. Um, So I got, I got licensed, uh, started with, um, started small with one room Luckily, it worked out, um, knocked it out of the park right from the first grow. So I got a good uh, amount of money in and then I started reinvesting right away. Um, I, re- I reinvested in building another room eventually. And that's the room where I'm running the Horizon System beds. Uh, so basically like that brand new room, if ever you want me to come back on the podcast, like I would have loved to be at the facility to show you in person. Um, so if ever in the future you guys want to do that, I, I'd love to. So I have that that room. It's like right now, just my dream room running. Um, I'm done my first grow in it. And uh, in the other room, I'm still in uh, organic pots, more of a super soil kind of thing going, uh, which I'm still reusing the soil. And it's surprisingly, like, it's working out really well still, like, grow super dank meat in it. Uh, but clearly, the, the horizontal room is just, like, kicking ass. Incredible, incredible. Um, so I'm just uh, waiting for spring because everything's frozen right now. Um, I um, I wildcrafted a lot of things that are in my uh, horizontal beds right now. So I'm waiting for for warmer weather so I can go get what I need for uh, for the other room. Um, I also want to convert my veg room, like all my mother plants, all that stuff. I want all horizontal soil. Um, I'm totally hooked. And then uh, I also have an R and D room. Uh, It's not very big. Uh, It's maybe like, I'm running three lights in there. So it's like 12 by five kind of canopy. Um, And I do a lot of uh, phenol hunting in there. Um, So I'm actually gonna switch that to horizontal also. So I wanna be like as absolutely regenerative as I can. Um, and then, like, my ultimate, ultimate goal out of all of this is to be Dempure certified.
1: <laughs> nice, nice. And I, yeah, I don't see so I'm almost there.
2: I'm almost there. I feel it.
1: Yeah, yeah, you are. And, and again, you know, those guys, I, I love them so much. They're so open hearted and they work with you in any way they can. So, you know when you know when you when you're comfortable, reach out. But they'll 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 help you close more loops and and get into the, you know into the certification, for sure. Yeah, like
2: yeah, yeah. And I'm just waiting to contact them because I want to contact them when everything's done, and I feel like I'm there. Which is literally I'm just waiting for spring. Like that's it. Um, so once I feel I'm there, hopefully I can get in, in contact with them and then work on th- maybe things that uh they 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 find that I could do better. Uh I'm sure there's there's something I'm I'm gonna have to tweak. Um, but uh we also have like we're lucky and we and when I say we, um I'm 50-50 partners with uh my brother-in-law. Um he's awesome. So our our property that our facility is on is actually very big. So we have a huge uh, vegetable garden on it. So I think that's a big thing that maybe micros just couldn't achieve because, you know, you're you're uh, in the middle of, I don't know, the GTA or something or in a, an industrial park. You're not going to have an outdoor indoor garden. Um, but, you know, we want to be like a regenerative um, outdoor garden, too we do, uh, we have beehives, so we do beekeeping. Um, and then we're going to go heavier this, this summer for sure on, uh, planting flowers. Um, so yeah, like I'm just trying to pull all this together to just be Dempier certified.
1: That's, you know, that's, that's awesome. I'm so <laughs> happy for you. I mean, and I know they'll, they'll definitely hook you up and, you know, it can't hurt to reach out now. Um, and if you need a reference, I'm yours, dude. We <laughs> <laughs> really appreciate that. Uh, yeah, because- you know, I
2: remember a long time ago, um, uh, well, not a long time ago. Like I still go to my, my local Hydra store to get some supplies and stuff like that. And, um, one of the guys that work there, his name's Rafi, like, you know he really looked up to, to Dempure and i looked up to, to him and um I, and uh you know i always had that in the back of my mind like that's the ultimate thing that you could achieve you know so it's yeah
1: it's what i'm trying to do it's definitely a high standard for sure and uh, yeah and it's a yeah. family I'm, I'm
2: skipping i'm skipping the organic certification like screw it
1: yeah right <laughs> <laughs> i'm going
2: for the real deal <laughs> there you
1: go There you go. if
2: ever i can put dim pure certified on my package i think that like that's way more legit than saying organic certifi- certified certified and in my mind you know
1: well it's it's above and beyond it's regenerative yeah. it's not even if organic. they
2: if they'll even let you do that i don't know if they let you like you know market You use their name as marketing so that
1: absolutely they do absolutely they give you a crest with your with your phone yeah that you can can apply to all of your paperwork so um, and and again they'll have local people in your neighborhood or in your area that will help you get through the process and they'll be the ones to make the suggestions so go ahead you know go ahead and reach out whenever you're ready but um you know it can't hurt to start sooner rather than later at least you know that's that's my opinion, anyway. Yeah,
2: no doubt. Well, I I will reach out, and I know my issues already that they're not going to like. Like I'm on a well, and uh, I have to do RO um, because I have like a ton of unknown minerals. Like the ppms are pretty high in the in in the well water. The the pH is 9.0. You know, so. Jeez when I do my reverse osmosis process, and then I just add a little bit of calcium, a little bit of magnesium to, to remineralize, it gives me like a really nice balanced pH. Uh, the plants love it. Um, compared to, I tried with just the straight up well water and you really see like problems in the plants, right? So I don't, I don't like doing the RO because it's really obviously wasteful. Um, so I don't know what they're going to say about that. That's a discussion we'll have to, we'll, we'll have to have, um, you know, a little bit, a couple more issues like that, that I have in mind, but I'm sure it's something we can work through and figure out
1: solutions. Yeah. You know, again, they're not, they're not restrictive. It's all about finding solutions. So if you have to use an RO, you have to use an RO. You don't have a choice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there and are, to be uh, honest with you, man, like I should, I should do
2: some, some testing because when I tried the well water, it was just like straight up 9.0 and I had terrible results on a test grow and I, I kind of blamed it on the fact that there were too many of those minerals giving me the 9.0, but maybe I should just try to acidify what I have from the well, you know, um, when i discovered that i wouldn't be able to use my well water uh that was right before getting licensed i wanted to try the whole scene uh just all the components that I had to work with what I was going to run into. Uh, and I ran into that issue. So I just like attacked that issue with all I had. Right. Like I, just, <laughs> I'm like RO, UV filter, like remineralize CalMag, like get on top of my pH, like nothing. So maybe I could remove the, 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 the RO component. Like, what do you guys think? Like, it's about three, 350 PPMs of, I don't know what kind of minerals I just checked for heavy metals and there weren't heavy metals.
1: There like, were no heavy metals. No. Okay. All right. Well, that's a huge step in the right direction. Usually yes. that's the issue and not just yeah. the calcium, not, not just the uh, hard water. So you, know, you very- think, uh, pardon me. Go for I it. said you very well may be able to, um, you know, add a, a some kind of buffer to to knock it down. Av, do you have any thoughts on on how best to control water like that?
3: I, I was wondering, have you? In uh, my apologies for, for I don't know what's going on with the uh, with the computer, so I'm I'm just uh, on the phone here. So um, oh, apologies please. for being late. Uh, I was just wondering, have you ever tried just running it through like the big blue filter?
2: What's the big blue filter?
3: The the. I don't know. It's called, I think it's called the big blue filter, but it's just a, a carbon based filter. Uh, some, sometimes you can get filters that are just doing a bit of a sand filter and just trying to uh, clean some of the, some of the organic material as well as some of the minerals. So well, it, it,
2: it passes through a sand filter actually, because the water and other issues smells horrible mm. uh, because uh, it must be sulfur gas. It really smells like rotten eggs. Uh, so I pass it through that, then it goes through the RO, Um, then it's, it gets remineralized. Yeah. Um, yeah. So bottom line, I know I could get, uh, ahead of the problem using, um, citric acid, no problem. So I can dial in my pH with that. Uh, it's just, again, the unknown of that, like 350 PPM, like like, do you think that I could have salt buildup issues and beds and like things like that? If there's that much minerals in the water?
3: I and I, I, think another good first step is, is to get it tested and to find out what, what is causing that 350 PPM. Um, yeah, hopefully it'll get, I broken. should get on it.
2: Like, yeah, I just tested for heavy metals to make sure that I wasn't ran, running into that risk. Yeah. And then I asked the lab like, okay, well, what, what other, um, uh, elements can I, can I test for? And they just told me, well, it's unlimited. Like you got to tell us. And I was like, Oh, okay. I don't know. But what do you guys think? Like, should, should I just, um, test for sort of, uh, minerals that are uptaken by, by plants? Uh,
3: I think, I think it's, you, you should definitely, um, I think a typical household water test should be able to uh, highlight the majority of the minerals that we want to be looking at but yeah. predominantly our cations we also want to make sure that you are looking at your bicarbonate levels that's probably going to have a greater influence on on whether it's something that might need to go through ro um, yeah and and um but yeah your your calcium magnesium sodium and then and then some of the other um, trace minerals that can be can throw things off like excessive iron or, uh, or, or manganese.
2: Um, that's exactly what I was trying to prevent. You know, I was like, if I have that many minerals, like something could cause a lockout, something could happen. So if I just RO it and then a bit of calcium magnesium to, to remineralize, um, you know, that was a safe route because I, I needed, um, uh, a for sure fix, you know, and it totally worked. Um, the thing with like adding just a bit of CalMag to, to RO2 is that it stabilizes your pH. So I don't have to throw, um, I don't have to throw citric acid or nothing like that in it. Um, and, so, uh,
3: th- and I'm going to throw this question probably to both of you. Uh, but, uh, has anyone ever used fulvic acid, like a, a true fulvic acid, probably have a low pH, um, has anyone ever tried to use that as as a ph down i haven't
2: tried
1: I'm um, telling you. you know that's a great question I've, I've always used humic acid for that um because i want those um other added benefits of of its buffering power so uh, so one,
3: so using humic acid as a ph up
1: no no uh using humic acid as both a ph down because it's a low it's an acid so it knocks the it not definitely knocks the ph back a bit um, most, but it's, most
3: most humic acid is is isn't it like ph neutral or even alkaline
1: it's a little bit alkaline usually yeah and and you know to be honest with you um because there are so few places that can test humic acid for what its properties are i've never actually gone down that road like for tom i would have said hey you know definitely get the water checked basic chemistry you know, you don't need to get crazy, um, definitely heavy metals, and then go go. You know, make your assumptions or your changes from that point on. But in, in my experience, whenever I've used humic acid, it makes chemistry that's out of whack play nice with itself. I, I don't know why. I can't explain it. You know, I've had these conversations with uh, Robert Faust, or Dr. Faust, I should say. And he's like, look, there's so many different components in humic acid. That it, it'll be a lifetime before we can literally unstitch it to figure out what's doing what and why this is you know why it's working why it isn't. I that's
2: actually right, got sorry go.
1: Well, that's right. I actually got hit up by a, a grower that we had on the other podcast that I did with Brian. Um, she hit me up because she was having some uh, amazingly healthy plants, but her test results were horrible. Her her pH was like four nine five. Um, and but she wasn't having any newt lock, so I'm like, well, what have you been doing? She goes, well, I always every other week I hit it with humic and fulvic acids. I'm like, oh my god, there you go. That's why you're not having deficiencies. I'm her nitrates were to the fucking roof. All of her all of her uh, relationships, you know, like the primary calcium uh, to uh, magnesium to potassium, way the fuck out of whack. But she sent me pictures of the plant, and it was like what the fuck is going on up there? (laughs) But that was the key. So the the value of humic acid in in any situation, uh, especially like a rescue, someone calls with a, um, you know, I I need help. I need help. Fish brew, (coughs) kelp, water-soluble kelp, and then humic acid. And I usually tell people TM7 or TM6 because a lot of times the trace minerals throw shit out of whack too. So, Dan's asking if it would be the, the full power that you'd be using for that. No, it would be the, the humic acid. Uh, so, TM7, TM6, or uh, I think it's, uh, there's another product that he has. It's like uh, Pure hum, Humic or Humix. You'd have to go to the, the BioWag website, but he has a number of products that would help in that situation. Now I don't know if if just adding, you know, like a, a a good solid humic acid to your water would bind up some of those things, but I, I gotta believe that it would definitely knock the edge off of it. Yeah, you know, it let's back. say
2: you put some like TM seven in uh, a water tank, like that could get pretty nasty, right? Like is there a a humic um uh, humic acid product that you can think of that you'd put in a water tank and things would
1: stay clean. Uh, no, no biofilm, no problems. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, as a matter of fact, I'm working on a project down in Irvine um, to help them save water. And part of it is to, you know, supply BioComplete compost um, for the, for the restoration of the trees uh, and, the, and the birds of paradise. But I told them, I go, do you have a dosatron? And they're like, yes. I'm like, all right, well, you need to start adding a hemic acid to tie up the chloramine or at least break it into ammonia and chlorine, which can gas off independently or yeah. the ammonia can actually be used. So I got to believe, you know, I'm going to highly recommend that you take the well water, send that off with another bit of well water where you've just added like 1%, uh, some kind of TM7 or 6 and just yeah. have them do the chemistry because that would be some incredible data. And yes, we definitely want you to be back on when you're at your grow. I know we we threw a curveball at you. And again, thank you so much for coming on, Tom. But we're oh, gonna do Yeah, we're definitely gonna do a repeat where you're at your garden. So you can you know, do a garden tour or a facility tour. I'd love to. I'd love to. Yeah.
2: Um, well, yeah, and I've been like that's been on my mind a lot. Um what we're talking about, the water thing. Uh, When I ran into those issues from well water, uh, that's really when when I realized the importance of water, like so important because I was getting really bad results and I was like, everything is so dialed in right now, but the water is different than where I used to grow before, right? So that's when I really dove into water and trying to understand it uh, the best I could anyway. Um, so yeah, like I said, I, I just went all out and fixed every possible problem, but there's some things that I could backtrack like we're discussing and I would love to, to not do RO right. Cause that's a, a big wasteful thing. I mean, at the same time, the reject water goes back on the property, you know? So is it, is it that bad? It's not like it's going in a
1: sewer no that's that's you know at least you're being smart about the water that's coming out for those of you who don't know ro is is uh pretty ineffective as far as how much water is actually rejected out of the system and not yeah. allowed to bypass or pass through the filtration system so in that regard it is it is pretty wasteful uh, yeah. but if you're using that on the property or putting it in storage you know like a cistern and then using that to water you know your outdoor garden those are the kinds of things those are the loops that that dragonfly would be looking for yeah yeah
2: and i was talking about it with my my business partner uh trying to trying to you know come up with some solutions and that's what he told me he was like well you know the reject water just goes right back on the property where, where it came from so it's not technically that bad
1: so you know no it's the best way feel- you. To, to deal with the problem ab did you have something to add
3: no i was just wondering uh speaking of backtracking i was i was wondering if is there a chance that we could backtrack a little bit to uh perhaps mention some of the other loops that you're trying to close uh in your garden for the dragonfly earth medicine certification
2: yeah 100 percent. so it's- um When I was growing in pots, which I still am in one room there, uh, I used to chop and and drop every single thing. Worked uh, really good. Um, I ran into a problem though, where I had soil decomposers really uh, explode in population. So, um, you know, that's not really a big concern for myself uh, personally, but I am a licensed producer. And if I have bugs roaming around my, um, on my plants and getting stuck in, uh, in the trichomes, uh, that could become a problem. So when I realized that I had an, an explosion of rove beetles, um, I said, OK, I have to rethink my chop, chop and drop. So um, I ordered a bunch of red wigglers and now I'm, um, I'm doing worm castings with um, all my plant matter that I'm not using, and that's returning uh, back to my soil. Uh, So every single part of the plant is definitely going to be um, returned to the soil. Um, I'm gonna obviously keep reusing the soil in my beds, obviously, just as I am um, in my pots. So, you know, as far as amending, I'm going to have to work with you guys if you don't mind with the, with the re-amendment process. And that's another issue of being fully regenerative is that I think that if I'm selling my buds, obviously those buds contain uh, a lot of nutrients uh, that go out the door. So I'm going to have to replace them um, somehow. Um, I know Dempier, like they really need to know where that is coming from um, and it's really important. So, you know, I'm going to have to to work on that. That's another thing to, t- to tackle. Um, but I mean, as far as reusing all my plant matter, reusing all soil, I think it's pretty damn close to as closed loop as you can be indoor selling your flower.
1: Would you guys say? Well, so far you've already gotten, you've got your water loop, you've got your soil loop, you've got your cannabis loop you've mm. got worms you're going to do an outdoor veggie garden you're going to do a, you're going to do a flower or a pollinator garden there's six loops without even thinking about it brother oh man, you're, you're, you're almost there <laughs> yeah <You're, literally. laughs> yeah yeah it's, yeah, yeah, you, it's really you, exciting to me i mean you
3: you're, you're growing uh, some banker plants and some beneficials in amongst your in your horizontal bed
2: yeah, I am. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's another thing I got to learn more about. Um, sort of, I don't know how to do it properly. Like I'm just having a little bit of trouble getting plants to really grow under a thick cannabis con- um, canopy. You know what I mean? So uh, I, I put a bunch of uh, straw to cover the beds right after I was finished building the beds. And there were seeds in there, so that's like growing big time um, and nothing. So check it out, like <laughs> most of this was well crafted, so nothing was sterilized. OK, everything came straight from outdoor, indoor. Um, and I was just like kind of really excited at taking that risk. You know, like that's like major rule breaking. Right. Like you're supposed to have everything sterilized before it enters your shop, obviously. But I just put my trust on diversity, you know. So, um, I, uh, I inoculated with uh, nematodes that would feel, uh, feed on um, fungus gnat larvae um, and other things like that. I inoculated with um, aquatic microorganisms. Um so anyway um and all that outdoor soil hopefully contained a lot of diversity too and i'm having i'm at the end of my first grow right now i was actually gonna harvest tomorrow but i i just decided to let them go two days uh more so i'm gonna harvest thursday and i i think i might have seen like honestly three or four fungus gnats kind of fly like oh might be a fungus gnat. Um, I didn't see any rove beetles, like everything is totally, totally under control. Uh, but yeah, back to the cover crop. Um, I had that straw seed out and, and, um, and grow out. I planted a bunch more things, um, like, uh, creeping thyme, uh, marigolds, uh, a couple of other things that I'm not really seeing, uh, come out. Um, probably cause they don't have enough light. That's my, that's my guess right now. Um, so I'm going to try planting a bunch more things after this harvest, uh, and see how it goes. But I mean, in general, the soil is pretty, pretty covered. Um, and again, since this was all, um, from outside, it contained a lot of seeds. So there's a lot of things actually going, uh, growing that I don't know what they are. They're just growing. Um, they don't seem to cause a problem. Uh, my, my, uh, the guy I grow with, uh, Danny, is always like, man, get that app and we'll just like try to identify uh, th- th- these plants, you know? But um, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, like the main goal is to have your your soil covered with plants and have um roots growing in there um you know with their exudates just uh um uh you know contributing to to, to adding d- uh diversity and exudates and you, you know the story so uh yeah that's what i'm doing so far but still a learning curve
3: yeah uh, i was is your um is, is your garden do you have much space even within your room to be able to perhaps have a few extra pots of, of, uh, of, of, a banker plant that you could potentially allow as a food source for a, a predatory aphid or,
2: or something like that. 100%. I even bought the seeds yeah. and everything, uh, and I have to get on it. So I think, I, I think, think have-
3: if, if you don't have room in your beds, that's a great opportunity. If, if you've got a room to throw a pot, um, and grow some banker plants there, attract I have people. to do that. Like uh,
2: I hear clover is really good to attack, to attract thrips, for example.
1: Be careful of banker plants in that regard because if you're not checking them, or that would be called a trap plant, if you're not checking them daily, yeah. then you could quickly create a nightmare for yourself. Okay. Um, so I usually tell people, look, if you're really busy and you're you know bouncing off the walls like a Super Bowl, don't use trap plants um, because okay. they're, they're a potential to just create incredible nightmares. Because you are in a controlled environment, it's yeah. the perfect environment for them to get out of control, <laughs> <Yeah>. literally. though,
2: <laughs> um, like the, the only thing I really run into is thrips. And I think, I don't know, my whole life of growing weed, I've always had a little bit of thrip pressure in organics. and you know thrips if if you know how to deal with it uh you know it's not gonna it's not gonna screw up your garden too much um so yeah luckily i'm i'm really exposed to the elements too i i feel like i'm pretty much in the forest surrounded by forest Mm -hmm. so like if there's things that want to go through cracks and sort of get in my facility and attack my plants um, they're kind of going to, um, but I think just keeping it like strictly organic must help big time with, with that whole situation.
1: So there was an episode we did, uh, way back when, when I was first doing the podcast three years, three years ago, um, well, almost three years ago now where we had Joshua Steensland on, on and he's, he's a, he's a rock star in the industry as far as being a pioneer and getting information out to people and. Well he's a,
2: he's a big inspiration of mine for sure. Yeah,
1: yeah. I I love I loved his approach to cover cropping. He said, I threw everything, including the kitchen sink, at it, and whatever survived, I added more of them. And yeah. I just let it go. And he goes, Yeah, a lot of the stuff died back as the canopy got big, but that's fine because it still provided all that soil structure from the roots um, and nutrients as those roots broke down or, or organic matter for the decomposers. So, I mean, it's a win-win across the board either way. And especially, like, when you're getting ready to reset the room, those little cover crops have a chance to, to get somewhere before totally. the canopy gets too dark and shuts yeah. them off. And then yeah. there was another suggestion in the in the chat here, which I thought was a great idea. Just get some T, what are those, T12s or T6s and just mount them on the side of the wall shooting underneath the canopy. You know, yeah. that may work really well for you as well. Yeah.
2: Uh, I'm actually going to plant. I have radish that I'm planting and carrots. uh, And I'm going to possibly, if I have the balls to do it, plant some potatoes.
1: (laughs) Oh, potatoes are king, dude. They're fucking king. Oh, my God. They provide so much food in the soil. And you can pull one out. The only thing that scares me is like. What what scares me, though, is like when you grow
2: potatoes outdoor, you get like all kinds of pests attacking it. Like
1: You should right? be fine. You should be fine. You especially fine indoor? Yeah, you should be fine indoor. I mean, I've had conversations with Josh and Callie about the power of potato and cannabis in combination. And and they'll swear by it, too. They, they don't know okay. exactly why, but they've had cannabis plants literally grow around a potato.
2: Okay, <laughs> Interesting. Okay, yeah, well, I'm there's a relationship. I'm right? it must, some.
1: Yeah, it must it must be something to do with the starches or whatever? But I'm assuming you have worms in your bed, right?
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, so that-
2: I inoculated the beds with worms. Uh, I haven't dug in to see how they're doing because, uh, again, it's my first uh, it's my first run. But yeah, what do you think? I was kind of I was kind of um, Uh, thinking about this, like if you really want to encourage worms and you're not chopping and dropping, do they have enough food in that soil?
1: Well, worms eat bacteria. So as long as you have a really good biological population or presence, it shouldn't be an issue, you know, and they're still going to do what they do best, which is, you know, consume that and create these little castings, these little pockets of power. um, Plus they provide aeration. So and, if, and if, law,
2: I was thinking too, like the whole no till thing where you don't get the root ball out, obviously, like that old root ball is probably pretty good worm food, absolutely, my friend. That's absolutely. Gonna, yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: So let's rewind it a little bit back. Um, have you ever done a biological uh test on your, on your beds? You um, have- I was going to, and actually, like, uh I was I was
2: watching your at uh, your podcast. Uh, I don't remember her name. She works Andy. for the Dow. Yeah. So I was I was uh, looking at her text and I was like, I wonder if that contact is Andy. Right. So uh I found her phone number and I'm gonna call her. Um, Goodness. hopefully that, that's still all right because, uh, definitely I'm going to, um, and I think that soil biology testing is going to become, uh, more and more, um, uh, common and popular. Like for example, a l labs in Canada, uh, have correct me if I'm wrong, but they started doing, uh, biology testing too, right?
3: Yeah. Not as detailed as what Andy provides, but it's your basic, oh, okay. um, um, sort of. They do bring it down to so-called functional groups and then and then some CO2 respiratory, uh, respiration uh, analysis. It's called the Vitalis Report. It's not as uh, detailed as as what uh, someone coming out of uh, okay. Elaine's labs would have. Uh,
2: I'll call Andy. But you know what? Uh, believe it or not, uh, one of Danny's friends uh, dropped by the shop today and he did Elaine's course. Nice. Um, so he's, he's at a 20 minute drive from me. So he's gonna, he's gonna uh, participate too. So Very nice. we're, we're on it. Like, you know, that's what I love about, um, about uh, Layton and you have like, you're always trying to find the next cutting edge. Right. So I want to leave no, no stones unturned. Like I'm doing, I do did soil testing before the grow I did plant tissue analysis every two weeks. I'm taking sam- soil samples this week to test after the grow. I'm gonna do the biological. Like I want all the data possible. Um, you know, I love the whole feel of growing weed um, because it's definitely an art. And I grow with observation. I grow with my eyes. I've always done that, but. I feel like if you really want to be on the cutting edge and grow the best weed possible, like you have to be lab testing. There's, it's just no brainer.
1: Agreed a hundred percent. And uh, you know, whenever I do uh, or start a project, I'm always looking at textural. So what, what am I up against? Sand, silt and clay, organic matter relationship, soil chemistry and soil biology. And a lot of times it'll be like, Oh, well, I'm really low on nitrogen. I'm like, yeah, but look at how many, uh, predators you have you've got you know 500,000 flagellates you know 20,000 amoeba they are going to produce 100 pounds per acre of nitrogen over a 30 day, or 90 day period so don't worry about the nitrogen let's let's look more at like calcium and your relationship on your saturated paste tests. Um, there's something and I have I'd love to have this conversation with the right person but there's some kind of relationship between calcium and nitrogen that I don't understand, uh, Steinbrenner talked about it back in the twenties. Um, and in my experimentation with Agriman, I played around with adding calcitic lime, um, to just straight up gum and had some really interesting results. I basically tested the gum before, you know, as a control. And then after I was finished mixing the product together, getting that gum to a point where it was no longer going hyperthermophilic, then I sent uh, off that test. And when it came back, the nitrogen was 4.521 was my was my NPK, and before it was .05 and no and high in potassium, so it was it was like a .050 or something crazy so look at look at what i did to that just by adding lime i i've got way higher nitrogen i've got potassium in lime, and i got mag in lime. just by doing that one thing now the volumes were were tricky i i had to keep playing with it until i got the the temperature to calm down but when i was done playing with it i ended up in this incredibly sweet spot so again and- i'm not chemist, but if you know anybody that's really deep into chemistry or, and or organic chemistry, it'd be great to have a conversation about that.
3: I, and, and, you know, late now I have had this conversation very briefly and it was on a discussion where, and, and I thought I learned this from Elaine as well as others, but that old school mentality, you don't add lime to an active compost pile, right? Because the, the, the notion is that you will volatilize a lot of that nitrogen Will then just go off as ammonia, right? So g- adding calcium carbonate to nitrogen, you're going to supposedly lose uh, a lot of that nitrogen as gas. Um, I wrote that to to Leighton. He wrote back, "That's just old school mentality, <laughs> right?" And and uh, I haven't I haven't found anyone else to 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 who's been able to look at that and the idea that you can use. Calcitic limestone added to essentially fresh organic material and increase the amount of available nitrogen is really challenging. It's it's a new school mentality and and something that we we definitely need to find more somebody who can explain that and and perhaps under try to better understand what they were doing in the previous um research at of Cornell. I, I remember reading it at a Cornell. You know the composting handbook, right? The old Cornell Publication Composting Handbook. That's where it said, yeah, you don't add lime to uh, to to uh, uh, an active compost pile because of... of yeah, you
1: know, I swear years. to God, I had, I had the exact opposite. Yeah. So my pile did not gas off ammonia. You stuffed your hand in that pile, pulled it out. It smelled lightly of forest. But when you stick your hand in that gom pile and you pull it out, it smells of ammonia. Hardcore. So you are gassing off the nitrogen in an ammoniacal form for sure in the composting process. So then again, it's like you know i I need more time to to suss that one out. <laughs> I need a a really good chemist that 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 understands uh, or an organic chemist that really understands the, these types of intricate relationships because. I saw exactly the opposite of that, and and so yeah, keep your ears open out, and, and I will.
3: And and I think it's I think you know you you touch upon it by just simply saying you know the it, a good organic chemist, because I actually think we need a organic chemist with the knowledge around microbiology, because I have a strong feeling this has more to do with microbes being able to be a, a integral part of that, the thermophilic microbes doing something with the calcium with the organic material to. To, uh, to hold it in, so. Uh,
1: and you know, this gets this gets even crazier because right now I'm working with the muncher crew. They're constantly using calcium in an aerobic digestion. All right, there's gotta be something to this app. He, Mo's work is so parallel to mine, it's not funny. Um, he keeps it at a certain temperature range between 100 and 104, I think, or 110. That's you know that's one of the sweet spots for for getting high biological activity. He keeps the the pH exactly at, at I believe six eight. Again, we'll have him on the show in May first, so we can really get get into the weeds with this stuff. But no, he's adding calcium to his process, so there's got to be something to it. So yeah, to be determined or keep yours posted, right? <laughs> so it's. Sorry, we got off the topic there, uh Tom, but you know, I really wanted to little
0: over my head.
2: So
1: (laughs) (laughs) what I really wanted to ask you was um for the audience sake, um can you tell a little bit about how you wildcrafted this stuff? Now, when Shango did his podcast on building a horizontal bed, he used to call me bitching at me because you know he was like smashing up rocks to make little ones for the gravel, and you know, he got crazy, right? And it was a lot of work. And so he'd be bitching at me. I'm sore as a motherfucker hiking up and down the creek to get the clay. <laughs> Can I use the sand next to the where the water comes out into the ocean? You know, all these crazy questions. So please tell us a little bit about your story in wildcrafting.
2: Yeah, well, uh, the guy that I grew with, uh, Danny, um, he used to grow on Denman Island, Um uh, in BC for a long, long time. I think he 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 was there growing uh, outdoor weed for about 20 years. Um, so, you know, as far as like can, um, cannabis labor, like that is the man, right? So if you ask him like, hey, where can I find like a good sandy loam? Do you have any ideas where I can find silt? Like he just like his brain just connects and he's on it. Right. So uh, he had a friend that um, pretty like really close to where he lives. It's about a half hour from the shop. Um, they he's got a pit. He's uh, he's he's in real estate. He owns a bunch of apartment buildings. And when he needs materials, like he has his own pit in the middle of a forest. And it happens to be an ancient um, ocean bed. Uh, it's it's uh, close to close to the Bay of Fundy, basically, right? So you go in there and there's all these fossils, all these really, really interesting uh, in- interesting jagged rocks of all kinds of colors, like exactly what you want, Layton. Um, and they happen to have all the equipment <laughs> to truck it out of there and bring it to our, to our facility, right? so that was freaking awesome um and around the pit um was the was the forest soil uh so it's uh it's a very sandy loam and it's very very deep so you it's you know kind of a little cliff you see the organic matter on top there and then it's just your sand silt and clay Uh, so I know it's not the best to take that from nature, but it had to come from somewhere. So it was a one-time thing that we took, um, you know, we took a couple yards there and, uh, trucked it to the shop. And, um, I did a bunch of, uh, jar tests, you know, to try to find out, um, what I, what I had as far as sand, silt and clay, um, ratios and, um, You know, it's really hard to determine, um, and we can talk more about that because of the whole, you know, uh, interpretation of sand silt and clay and the way that the labs are testing for it, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, bottom line is that I wasn't really seeing the middle part where you would have the silt. It it seemed to me like it was really heavy on, on sand, which is a good thing, and it had some clay, too. So in the back of Danny's house, um, believe it or not, he's got uh, fresh spring water going through uh, a marsh with beautiful silt. Uh, So we went in there, um, called a buddy with an excavator, and took a couple scoops, not too many, uh, brought it back to the shop. Um, It was extremely difficult to uh to fully dry so i like i have a dry room right to, to dry my cannabis so i made sure i had zero cannabis in there like everything was cleared we brought the silt in there okay and i just cranked my de-hues. Uh, and I, I got it fully dry. So I had like pretty close to pure silt. Like I did the jar test on it and there was some clay, which was fine with me. There was a little bit of sand too, but mostly silt. So then when I took that stuff and I, uh, mixed it in with my, my forest soil, it really created that middle layer of, of silt that I was looking for. Um, so yeah, basically like, uh, rocks from an ancient uh, ocean bed um right next to that the forest soil mixed in with the silt to get as close as proper ratios as i could from uh danny's marsh and uh that whole mix um was mixed in with uh, organic matter of course um and then before before going all in on anything i do a test so i did a test in a pot with exactly that it absolutely like blew my mind uh even compared to 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 plants doing really well in straight uh potting mix uh so when i realized that i really had it down i had no issues um yeah i went all in in the beds so the, the rocks, the sand, uh, the sand, silt and clay are all well crafted um, locally. And um, of course uh, the, the, the potting mix uh, wasn't. Um, so uh, I actually got my potting mix uh, f- from Ontario that, uh, from a company called uh, Black Swallow um, Living Soils. Uh, again, I tested, um, their potting mix first, to, to make sure it worked for me. Uh, I also got uh, lab testing done. It was all fine. Um, it's aerated with pumice too. So I, I, I went with that instead of the perlite. Um, so, you know, it's kind of half and half, half wildcrafted and half with the help of, uh, black swallow. And I mean, they're really legit too. Like, um especially as far as passing every test that I have to to pass. They're absolutely hundred percent on it. Um, All the amendments, for example, that they provide will be super low in cadmium and uh, cadmium uptake in cannabis uh, is definitely an issue. Um, But if you run their potting mix or you run their amendments, I can, almost guarantee you you're gonna have like mind-blowing low amounts of cadmium um so yeah that's the story how, how how i got everything um now the whole mixing and how to put it in the beds um honestly man like i, I feel bad but it was in the middle of winter it was pretty hardcore Uh, I couldn't really get a soil mixer. So what we did is we did like mini batches at a time of sand, clay, organic matter. So we like, I hired like a bunch of guys, we were like eight or nine, we all had shovels. And we, we took like, okay, we're like five buckets of sand, silt and clay, a half bucket of silt, two buckets of organic matter or whatever. I'm just saying that. So we had our ratios dialed in and we did many, um, uh, many, many batches, like I said, exactly the same every time. So that's how we mixed our sand, silt and clay, organic matter uh, by hand. We also, I also buy uh, bought uh, two cheap tillers from amazon so we just like tilled shoveled tilled until we were really happy where it was as homogenous as possible and then by hand with buckets we filled we filled the beds so it was it was pretty uh pretty crazy physical um but uh that's the part i like about uh growing cannabis i love um I love the labor of growing weed, you know, um, it keeps me in shape. Uh, and yeah, I just like, I wouldn't like, I'm the owner of the facility and everything. And I'm a businessman. Like I said that I was a professional musician, but I also got into real estate. I was a landlord for a long time. Uh, that's how I built equity to even get started in this. Um, but yeah, like, uh, I, i I'm, I'm part business businessman, but, uh, what I really love is the actual labor. Um, so the, the beds aren't very small, you know, so they're 45 foot long by, uh, four wide. Um, so we did everything by hand, including those rocks and all those sand and all that sand and everything. It took us, uh, it took us three days.
1: Um, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. You're an animal, brother. I love you.
0: (laughs) Crazy, baby. Crazy. That's a rock and roll attitude. Okay.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. Because I I
2: heard you, Leighton, say how important it was to have a a soil mixer. And I totally agree. It just, like, (laughs) I tried. It just wasn't happening. Like, think about this. Like, all our stuff was outside frozen. So, like, we had to get it in the garage and have it, like. Thaw out and oh man it, it was anyway but we made it happen and i'm having zero straight up zero issues so i think we did it right
1: <laughs> no you you definitely did it right i mean that's how i build compost is with five gallon buckets so that i get my ratios exactly right and and in small batches it's the best way to go um especially yeah. when you're doing test or test uh recipe tests yeah um, so and and obviously what you did is way better than just a regular soil mixer. Like those those little soil like the cement mixers. Eh, okay. okay. Mortar mixers way better than 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 cement mixers. I, see, I feel better about it now. But <laughs> yeah, the hand mixing is by far going to be the best way to get it completely homogenous. Yeah. And obviously you did. Yeah. So, and again like
2: my 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 co master grower danny that comes from growing 20 years of outdoor on denman like having that guy um on the team to do that kind of labor like that's where you see value in a guy like that man like when we do projects like projects like that that need hardcore labor um, you need a real cannabis grower
1: a real farmer. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, something interested, interesting. Just a side note, like something hardcore we did once was um, I was on the borderline of. Um, I, I the the last meeting we had Av where we talked about heavy metals. I I, I forgot to discuss this. Um, So we were having heavy metal issues where we weren't necessarily failing, but we were kind of uncomfortable about it. So I said, you know what, like we're going to take. Okay, so Av told me this. He was like, dilution is the solution probably to pollution. Right. Because I was having cadmium issues. So we went and took out by hand out of all our pots, like three quarters of our potting mix. And unfortunately, well, didn't throw it out. We put it on the garden, so it's all good. Um, But uh, I replenished it with just like soilless all by hand um, in the room. And then like top dress amendments um, over that and mixed warm casting. So like redid the whole thing, like two thirds, three quarters or something. Um, So that was a hell of a work day. Um, and I did a whole grow and curiously, man, like the amendments that I used, okay, was the same as I used in another room where I had next to no cadmium and still that, that pot that had that remaining, like, let's say bottom third of like heavy cadmium, not that bad, uh, soil, the plant picked up the exact same amount. So all that labor was worth nothing. Yeah. <laughs>
1: No, wasn't it, it,
2: about that. Is it just that? Oh, cadmium is present. You have no molybdenum. <laughs> it's picking it up.
1: It, it's all. Lessons. It's all lessons, my friend. <laughs> yeah.
2: So I guess but, the dilution wasn't the solution to pollution. That <laughs> <anyway>.
1: <laughs> no, biology. It's a little
2: pollution.
1: Yeah, biology is the solution to pollution. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, yeah, that's that was uh, I was glad that you you came to realize that. It's such an important thing that I don't think anybody gets in the in the cannabis space. And I know in the farmer space as well, is the the criticalness for, for molybdium. Um, it yeah. has so many important plant processes. Um, and again, if you if you don't have any present or you're low, um, it's gonna pull up selenium or, or cadmium, and then you're gonna have issues. You're gonna have real, real issues with the plants.
2: Yeah, well we'll see I'll, I'll if you don't mind I'll share my um my test results from this crop with you guys. I expect to be very very low in um in heavy metals because one um I really trust Black Swallow. Uh I tested my sand silt and clay and I corrected my molybdenum uh deficiency adding uh humic acids with trace elements containing that uh that mineral, right? so i should be pretty balanced out
1: yeah i'm looking forward to seeing those results my friend that's uh yeah yeah curiously
2: man like the the plant tissue analysis that that came back every two weeks i was talking about it with ab actually like the only thing that i was really hitting um, on target, as far as the lab's targets, were nitrogen. So I wasn't very high in nitrogen, just right on target. But almost every other mineral, I was like, just like the plants were just taking it up big time. Um, so my plants looked not toxic. Uh, it didn't look like it has had any toxicity of any um, mineral or nothing like that. Um, so I'm just guessing that in a, in a living soil that's rocking that much, like, what do you guys think? I, I think it, 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 wanted some minerals and it, it was uptaking it. Yeah.
3: You know, um, this is, this is, it's almost fortunate that we didn't have Dan today. Cause this, I think is a nice, a nice lead into Dan next week. Right. Because a lot of what Dan Kittred talks about, about not, you know, in the, in the Bionutrient Food Association, is just that you want to have incredibly remineralized soils so that the plant can choose whatever it needs at that time i think it's really important that we don't put too much weight on on some of these tissue tests right because they are especially their recommendations their recommendations are based on on very very little data that data is is probably pulled off of a handful of strains so we really we really don't know um they're they're very they're not cultivar specific and and so um i I think i think it's quite interesting how how and and i i this one question i really wanted to ask you because we we focus a lot on the on on the growing aspect but but i also know that you are quite a connoisseur when it comes to tasting your product and making sure that it's hitting not not only the qualities that that you want for the regulated market but your own personal qualities that you want as somebody who consumes cannabis right yeah and and so to be able to talk about that because i think you know nobody's that interested in eating food that is yes bio nutrient dense but if it tastes like shit nobody really wants to eat that right so it's it is important that that the end product is is something that we like um and and so I think the fact that you've got this incredibly diverse soil full of biology, obviously the physics is there with the horizontal system. The, now, it, I assume it's called a high tension. Would you call it a high tension soil? If, if you call the other soils low tension, would this be a high tension yes. soil?
1: Yeah, it would be a high tension because it holds a lot of moisture.
3: You get a high. So the physics is there. you got the physics there. You've got the biology there. You've got the chemistry there. The plant is doing what it's doing. And the tests may not reflect what the end product is actually going to end up
1: tasting like. So. And, Av, Av, I agree with you 100%. A lot of the data is pulled from chemistry, not from biology and, and physics and all of these other components. Like chemistry, traditional NPK farmers do not even take biology into consideration. Um, what a huge mistake! And another thing too that is is really important to understand about those tests is you have soil chemistry test, you have a leaf tissue test, but you should also be getting the sap test because leaf tissue is like the bones, what was left behind or the foundation of it. But what's really pulling in on the sap is telling you what that plant or that cultivar is using at this point in time. But this is where we need a database so that other people can see where are, where am I in my range? You know, obviously the plant looks good, but where is all the data sets that get me to the end result, which is the taste, uh, terpenes, cannabinoids, cannabinols, right? We don't have that data. And you know, ironically, uh, Chip Osborne and I set out years ago to try to figure out what the soil chemistry requirements were so that we could plug in organic nutrients, into the soil profile um, so that we knew we were going to be right in the sweet spot. But we quickly learned that every cultivar requires different things in different balances. So we gave up. It was like, there's there's no way because you guys are breeding faster than we can keep up with what cultivars are asking for what, you know, so why even go there? Why not just come at it a different way, um, which is to take into consideration those three main things. Physical, Sanso Clay, organic matter, chemistry, and biology. If those three things are all in balance, stand back and let her go.
2: Yeah. Well, I'm really excited um, to see what different uh, genotypes or cultivars are going to do in the horizontal system because I think a big part of cannabis right now is that growers, for the most part, are all growing in the same um you know, same things, whether it be rock wool or cocoa or super soil or whatever. So, you know, I know nothing about wine, but you, you, you think about wine, it's all about uh, what, what that indigenous, indigenous soil is all about. Right. So we're here being cannabis connoisseurs, smoking weed that all comes from the same fake stuff, you know, So like, I'm really interested in what we're going to see in the next few grows with, um, all this locally crafted, um, soil, you know, so important, um, incorporating that sand, silt and clay that to me, like adds such another whole level to possibilities that, uh, you could have from, um, from plant, plant expressions. Right. And I can tell you right now that, um, we really see our grow right now as the closest to an outdoor grow that we could have indoor, right? So we're all about outdoor weed, but unfortunately, it's impossible right now to 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 really be competitive because people want outdoor, uh, people want indoor. Um, but yeah, we're we're really seeing the outdoor sort of as much as possible come indoor. Um, these plants just have like an aura going on, like, um, you know, they're they're so the 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 stalks are like so perfect green, you know, no deficiency, no redness in it. Uh, they grew so vigorously and. So it, we're we're saying this all the time. Looking at the the grow right now is when you when we grow in pots. Usually, like there's a couple of plants in the room that for some reason just went crazy, and we're just always like, oh man, imagine the whole grow would be that plant, you know? But it's it's just impossible. It's it's just that one out of um, you know four or five hundred or whatever we decide to run. Um, so, uh right now like every plant is that plant you know what i mean um so so it's really really like crazy crazy results on it's almost like i'm exaggerating here but it's almost intimidating like the plants are so monstrous they're almost intimidating um, and another big thing that I've noticed that's really interesting and um, Leighton says that it's because I'm not growing in uh, low tension soil. Cause we've talked about it is how much light that the plants can take. So I noticed that on my test grow where I, I ran just one horizontal seven gallon pots among hundreds of other just regular uh, potting soil pots. And what I always tend to do since everything is so cultivar specific in, in cannabis. And sometimes that's why I feel it's, it's hard to always um, get to conclusive uh, conclusions about things. It's kind of hard to be scientific when we're always growing different strains because it's always so cultivar dependent. Um, But Anyway, so what I do, what I'm getting at is I always try to push light intensity as much as I can until I see stress and then I back off a little bit, right, to just know that I'm pushing them at their limit. So I did that on that grow and the whole canopy was stressing, Um, I'd say in this case at about like 900-ish PPFDs but the only plant in the room that was just thriving was that horizontal pot. So that's when, when I realized, okay, well, there's something going on here that it can handle more light. So when I did my first grow, well, this grow that I'm doing here, I really pushed the plants heavier and heavier and heavier with light. And where I'm usually like a guy that likes to run eight, 900, uh, micromoles, um, PPFDs, whatever. Um, I'm, I ran like a good solid 1,200 on this one, and they just took it. Um, really, really impressive. Really interesting. With, with,
3: with CO2 as well?
2: Yeah. 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 Nice. Yeah. Um, I've never really uh, – that's something I want to experiment with. Um, But sometimes, you know, it's hard to experiment in a big room with something like CO2, because I can't do like half my room at a certain PPM, and the other half, uh, another one. And I'm kind of scared at doing full grows, lower CO2. Because like, You know, if it doesn't really work out and I lose a bunch of yield, well, it was a waste of electricity. You know what I mean? Um, So um, right now, like I'm running CO2 pretty hard, uh, like uh, 1200 ppm, something like that.
1: Did they make a tent that's sealable that you could really seal up and use gas with? Oh
2: yeah, I'm sure I could. I, I could set up some tents to do. Uh, yeah, I
1: don't know if the tents are. I don't know if the tents are are uh, able to seal them. I think a lot of them have vent flaps and zippers, and so I yeah. don't know if you actually get the level of CO2 in there without dumping a, a fuck ton in and losing a lot of it out. Those seams, yeah, maybe. I don't know. worthy of worthy of a little research to see if you can find an airtight tent. Um, yeah. That you could the expect- bottom line like
2: uh 1200 ppm seems to be the pretty much the industry standard, right? Uh, I know guys are running lower, like 800, uh, with uh, great success too, so it's always something to, to try. But definitely, I would say like adding CO2 indoor is a must because if, you, if you're tracking CO2 levels in your room um like when my plants are in mid flowers and really giving her i mean at night they gas off co2 right so let's say they gas off co2 i'm and and like first thing in the morning i'm in like 23 ppms uh 2300 ppms um and my my um my let's say my tank ran out right because it happens And I I didn't realize. So I'll see that 2300 go to like 150 in give or take like two hours. Right. So, like, they just take up CO2. So, you need to supplement. I can't, I've honestly never even tried not supplementing, you know.
1: Interesting. Very cool. And, you know, else you
2: guys think it's, was that?
1: I was going to say, I had another question reeling back to something you said earlier about, um, the cannabis that's getting ready to be harvested on uh, tomorrow, the next day. Yep. In the other room, do you have the same cultivar grown grown in the low tension soil?
2: I actually do. Yeah.
1: Do, you, do you, now you have the ability to side by side test and once and for all prove that growing in in a natural <laughs> system is going to provide higher levels of cannabinoids and terpenes? Alip- that's a and- big
2: problem, Leighton. Uh, it's not the same lights oh
1: shit oh well <laughs> yeah yeah so i'm you working like- on that
2: though. So, um in my horizontal room i have my dream lights it's insane i have full spectrum control uh i have a sunrise i have a midday going on i have no. a sunset like oh it's unreal um so I'm just, uh, working up to changing my, my other rooms, uh, older LEDs, uh, which I still get great, great results is just having all that control. Uh, I'm kind of addicted to it right now. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm honestly just holding off because it's going to be, we're talking about labor. That's going to be labor intensive, yep. um, because all LEDs are different. So right now my old LEDs do a four by four. Perfect. And the new LEDs do like something like a five by three, right? So I have to um, basically, long story short, add a whole other um, uh, uh, line of Unistrut to to get like more lines of light. Anyway, the. The um, the lights are going to be placed uh, differently, so then you got to like move dehumidifiers and ACs and like oh, this. And that. And so I'm gonna do it. It's just I'm um, I'm gonna I'm gonna build the beds first.
1: Well, you know, just for shits and giggles, why don't you why don't you send out a sample of both the low tension and the high tension soils? Just uh, even I'm going whole- to
2: no, I, I have no choice because regulation wise, I have to fully test my weed so you can share it's just that the spectrum is so radically different in the other room that um especially with the cultivar that i'm growing right now it's a gmo cross you guys know the gmo strain uh gmo in my experience like changes phenotypical expressions very much depending on spectrum like crazy so I, I ran test plants underneath those lights versus my new lights and it's it's almost a different plant, man. So like so we're not gonna be able to be very scientific about it.
1: So what about when you plug in your next run? You drag a couple pots into that room so that they get the same light and then run the whole side room.
2: True that, yeah. Um the only problem with that, and I'm not against it, that's a good idea. Let's do it all right let's do it i'm I'm gonna figure it out but it's gonna raise it's gonna raise that plant, um you know another 18 inches so obviously i can train it in the trellis to be shorter um or i could i'm I'm afraid that's gonna be non-scientific again if i i could veg a plant on purpose less to start with a smaller plant among bigger plants. You know what I mean? And try to get it at the same height.
1: What do you think? So
2: can you uh, not stack the plant
3: like on, on a, cause I have
2: to, I would have to, to put a super soil pot on top of the on, on top of the bed.
1: You know what I mean? Oh, because you don't have room on the floor
2: no i'm I'm growing on rolling benches, right?
1: so can you build a little roller that you can roll in between the benches when you're working on it and then roll it out and then move your bench and roll it back in just a, a one like you know one plant on a on a furniture dolly
2: yeah, but where do you put the when the when the um, the When the tables are all like in, in the, you know, the position where they're always in like all together, there's no space in the aisles or nothing. Like there's, you know what I mean? So I I'd have to find a way to, to, to to have that plant underneath the light. So there's not really any way that I can picture the way my room is designed that I can do this unless I would put a pot over
1: the bed. Got you. Which would right. be, be a pain in the ass.
2: Kind of, but you know, I do all kinds of shit that's a pain in the ass. For, <laughs> for, yeah, for, dig for it. Lead science. It into the bed.
1: <laughs> well, Ken, you don't want to fuck up. You don't want to fuck around with these horizontal systems. Yeah. Once you I get really it done, uh, it's a lot of work to put them together, and then if you mix them all up, and or especially if you penetrate the e horizon, it gets it gets ugly. Yeah. Uh, so well I, no,
2: let me think about it, man. I'd love to I'd love to do it to prove and to prove a point. Um, you know, and that's a big thing that I didn't mention about the whole the whole scene of of uh building those beds is we we custom built rolling benches to handle horizontal beds. Yeah. So I think we probably like won some kind of Olympic records for, for amount of weight put on a rolling bench. We hold that world record right now. I'm pretty sure. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome, dude.
3: And your, your beds are in uh, grassroots, uh, living soil fabric. Yeah. 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 18
2: inches deep. Yeah.
3: Do you want to explain a little bit about your fertigation system?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Um, that's, that's probably the one of the best parts, if not the best parts out of all this. Um, I had a couple different ideas. So if ever you check, check out my Instagram account, I have a couple pictures and, uh, you see Layton's idea of putting a pipe that goes down right to the bottom. Um, and, uh, it's a great idea if you're, if you're in a, like a four by four tent, and you're really restricted on space, um, you can just check your water level um, from that pipe and you could also um, water from the bottom through that pipe, right? So I put about uh, five pipes per bed, um, which was actually uh, completely useless because my beds are on plastic trays, just like trays that um, hydro guys would use to put rock, rock wool cubes on. And those, uh, those trays have like little channels um, helping the water to spread evenly through, uh, through that tray. So luckily I had the idea of ordering my grassroot uh, beds, um a little bit smaller than the tray to make sure that I wasn't going to get into any problems of the, the bed getting a little bit too wide for the tray. And thank goodness I did that because um, the beds do get wider as you fill them with soil for sure. Um, but uh at the ends of the beds, um I, I left like enough for uh a good six inches um per side right so if i just go where you would put like uh your drain pipes there if you were if you were doing um hydro and you wanted to drain out your runoffs right there obviously i don't have any runoff scene going on but if i just put a hose right there um and i water i notice that those little channels actually work perfectly under the bed and in no time, I had water coming up at the other um, end of the bed, like 45 feet um, uh, further, right? So um, it, 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 it was useless to try to, to be fancy and water through those pipes So what I did, uh, and I'll show you in person, if ever we do this again, live in the shop, but all I did is I ordered, um, little float valves from Amazon. They're like maybe an inch and a half, two inch long. And I, I just set that up on a little piece of Unistrut that's galvanized steel. So it doesn't float. So just that little thing there is, in that plastic tray, um, there's a water pipe that goes in the tray. And basically, like, I let the water rise about an inch. When there's an inch of water, the, the floating valve stops the water, just kind of like a toilet. And then when the bed takes it up and it's empty, oh, it replenishes another inch. Uh, so it's totally automated, just bottom watering. Um and it works like a charm. Uh another little trick I got is I put that um whole system on a timer because I don't really feel comfortable with always, always, always having water, uh an inch of water in those trays. So um I'm kind of playing around with it, like how um how long to let it run. Uh but so far I'm kind of going for almost all day. So I started like an hour after my sun up, right? Uh so my 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 lights go um uh go more and more intense. It takes an hour. So when it's at full intensity an hour after my timer goes on, so my water starts. And then I pretty much go all day uh for for a good like um all my all my my day of work. So let's say like 8 to 10 hours. Um, I let it go and it, it, it works great. Uh, and then when I get back in the morning, it's always, uh, it's always dry. So whatever they want to take up, um, at, 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 you know, it dries out at night. So there's a slight dry back. Yeah. So that's, that's picture of, that's a bottom bud picture right there of, uh, the tickle burgers, um, Fino that we're we're running right now that's a bottom nug like bottom wow. nugs look like top nugs the whole damn I'm the good. whole damn thing is top nugs it's insane okay <laughs> like that's Almost. not that's not a yeah that's that's like mid flower right there so that plant right there was a little extra high than everything else and there's like 1400 PPFDs um hitting it right there so you see like can you see the leaves curling a little bit yep that tells me personally as a grower correct me if i'm wrong but it's a little too much um but she could still handle it like luscious green like no real big issues there uh one thing I did notice that uh, I'm going to go back a little bit on my PPFDs this time. I was a little too excited. Like it could just take so much light. So I just went all out. Um, but I'd say maybe five weeks in where <clears throat> where there was the most lights. Like you can't have like perfect, perfect, even um lighting you're always going to have a little bit more light here and there in your canopy so those sort of hot spots for lights um for for light intensity uh have a little bit of bleach um so it it was just a little too much for them i think but where bleach was i was hitting over 1400 ppfd. right so that's what it was too much if you keep going in those pictures, you're gonna you're gonna hit some pictures of me building the beds there and um, building the horizons. Um. Yeah. So, like right um, there.
3: Layton, Le- um, I-, I wanted to ask you a little question around the oh those those are the beds there. I- yeah. I did I'm just about the pipes. Yeah. about having um the lack of lack of irrigation over the lights off period.
1: Oh, I. I think I think that uh, Alex's work uh, the the watering guy we're still desperately trying to get on right um, is really gonna open a lot of people's eyes to the understanding that that dry back is a good thing uh, I mean he he drive, drives back to something like I don't know sixty friggin' millibars or something crazy mm. like uh, and and has incredible results I mean to the point where Twice as much fruit, twice as hot. I mean, he was he was testing it originally on peppers. He's done a lot more testing since we've last talked. He's unfortunately moved to Spain, so we're on such a different time schedule. It's like eight hours different that we don't really chat as much as we used to. Um, but eventually, we'll get him on the show and and we'll really dive deep into into that better understanding of how drying and, and wet periods are good. Uh, I know, I know, Shango and I talked when he was doing his project about um, I called them torrential downpours. He didn't, he didn't like that name. He said, he he said, why don't we just call it water events? (laughs) No, I said, waterboarding. It's time to waterboard your plants. (laughs) He's like, no, 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 that's, that sounds bad. (laughs) So we came up with a a water event as a, as a term um, for it. But yeah, there is something to, uh, again biomimicking nature going through long periods of time where or periods of time where you dry back and then and then come back and moisten i don't mean dry out that's there's a big difference so please don't misunderstand me that i'm not saying dry it out it's just drying it back and letting that letting the biology release the water vapor trapped in all of the uh in the aggregates that are forming
2: see that's my room with the like the other, the other picture was my other room with a different spectrum. You see, so that
1: was purple. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Those, those are older lights. Like they're really heavy on, on blue and red, obviously. Uh, but they still do have a balanced white in it. It looks more purple uh, in photos, in, in pictures that it does in real life. And like believe it or not, with the right cultivar, I get better results off of those lights sometimes with the right cultivar.
3: And, and at a much lower PPFD as well.
2: Well, I have to run lower PPFDs in that room, yes, because it will bleach almost any plant. If I go over eight, nine hundred PPFDs, bleach, boom.
1: That's my that's my sunset right there. Oh, that is too cool. I remember yeah. talking to Wolf Siegel about this. Uh, God, probably two years ago, maybe more, maybe five years ago. Uh, yeah, during the pandemic, it was only three years ago. About doing mimicking sunrise and sunset, and then hitting hitting high UV in the middle of the day. And you've done it, dude. You've yeah. It.
2: Uh, well, that's something I gotta do, though. I don't have UV right now, and I'm well aware of what uh, Wolf Siegel says about it. And the whole thing about having the right um, uh, the right uh, wavelength, the right nanometers to have a plant response—that check it out. That's our first try at drawing out silt. <laughs> uh, it didn't work
1: at all. <laughs> Kudos to you, dude, for sticking with it and really busting it out. Getting it. now, now you can reap the rewards and. You know that was my whole reason for for you know getting you to talk about that is because it is kind of daunting, especially you know if you're trying to do scale it, it without machines and equipment, it's forget it. I mean, it's just so labor intensive.
0: Yeah, uh,
2: but
1: write- I,
2: I can I can t- I can so envision that you could bring bring that to to um, like a, a larger scale. You know. If you say that it's impossible to go larger scale, like you're just being a wimp about it, really. Like (laughs) put in some effort. You know, are you really serious about all this? Check out my cadmium right there, 0.04 PPMs. Boom. What do you want better than that?
1: Nice. Nice. Um.
3: you know, uh, I, I know. Uh, I assume there's some some questions uh, from from the uh, uh, participants as well. But I I did want you to comment a little bit about your your uh, your flower in terms of uh, of what you're tasting and and what you're looking for. Uh, and perhaps, if you wouldn't mind, just maybe even sharing some of your um, late flowering techniques. Um, so you're you're about to close down a room. Just maybe what, what you're doing there for lights and temperature and. Anything else that you might be uh, using as um, management techniques in in late flower?
2: Yeah, uh, you know, like one thing that I really sort of obsessed about was maximizing THC. And I tried like every trick in the book and what it comes down to, I find is like big time genetics, you know. So uh, if you're trying to gain an edge and up your THC, I'm sure there's some things that you can do. Um, but I, I I tried a whole bunch of things and nothing really makes a huge difference. Like, you know, the blue light treatment at the end, like going with way colder temps, uh, you know, the whole like uh, cold water, uh, drying them out, this and that. I tried it all. And to me, like if you're going to hit super high THC, you got to have the right genetic and I only say high THC because that's the, what the market wants. I know it's stupid, but it is what it is. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, like, to be honest, I think it's all, again, cultivar specific, right? Like uh, what you're going to do at end of flower, how it's going to affect that particular cultivar. So, uh, what I like to, to do is definitely drop my temps um, late in flower to get those colors out. Uh, and when I run um, when I run pheno hunts or really technically geno hunts. Right. Um, I, I, I have more control over my room because it's such a small room, number one. And I'm willing to take more risks, so I see a lot of colors come out, and uh, you know, bag appeal goes to the max with definitely dropping temps. The problem with that in a big room is that when you're dropping temperatures, several things happen. So, for um, first of all, um, dehumidifiers run more efficiently at a really uh, specific temperature and humidity which is like uh, in Fahrenheit, I would say you're around 80 uh, Fahrenheit um, and and around 60% humidity. And luckily um, for most of the grow, uh, that's a pretty comfortable temperature and humidity to be at. If you're starting to drop those temperatures, though, um, uh they're they're less efficient right those dehumidifiers so it's harder and harder to keep your your humidity under control um the other issue that you run in is the colder you go of course the less humidity the less moisture that the air is able to hold right so um you you just drop uh temperature and you keep the same moisture in the air your your percentage goes up right Another thing working against you is if you're following VPD charts, well, the colder you go, the lower percentage you have to run. So you're running on uh, against all these things that are sort of fighting against you when you're when you're trying to control a room like that. So. I do try to, to run lower temps as much as I can, uh, where I feel safer, but for the most part, um, temperature and humidity, I, I keep it the same until the end because of that risk that you can run into as far as, you know, mold issues and, and stuff like that. Um, so yeah. Uh, right now I'm running my beds. Uh, I'm drying them out a little bit, uh, for sure. At the end of flower, does that have an effect? I don't know. Um, we were talking a while back, uh, on, a, on a meeting that we had with, uh, dry backs at, um, around like two or three, uh, two or three weeks before, uh, the end of flower, which I could definitely, um, uh, I could definitely play with that, but yeah, bottom line, I have a lot of thoughts about it, but not a lot of science coming out of it. Cause it's so cultivar uh, specific. I've tried so many things, uh, without no- noticing, uh, cannabinoid and terpene contents that, you know, just right now I'm running pretty, pretty straight through, um, uh uh the the same uh the same light the same temperature humidity uh all the way through but that that's something i have to also work on and learn more um one thing that uh i'm doing right now actually as we speak is i drop the light intensity um, I took out, uh, as much red as I could just, to, because they do say that, you know, if you run a blue or spectrum at the end, it can help. Um, so, you know, as, as much as I'm sure you guys are aware, I'm aware of all the bag of tricks, but I can't say that I, I, I can comment scientifically on it, uh, too much so far. Like, uh, do you, do you guys have any, um... Suggestions or comment as far as uh, that goes.
1: I usually work with more outdoor guys, so they don't have yeah. control, you know. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. I don't know. I mean,
3: I think those are all the all the tricks that a lot of a lot of folks uh, tr- try doing. And and um, yeah, when it, it really depends on how your HVAC is set up, whether you can pull off the cooler temperatures and, and dropping your humidity. Typically, we do like to see it. A little bit closer to what your dry room's going to be, right? So if you're going to run sixteen sixty, it's kind of nice to kind of be finishing around the same. Um, and then your yeah, your lighting, of course. What did you
2: say sense. sixty sixty?
3: Uh, if you're running your dry room at sixty to sixty, then it's nice to kind of finish at sixteen sixty
2: as well, right? So that's like, I'm I'm totally down to trying that, but that's like totally not following VPD. Like that's very human to be like that cold, don't you find?
3: Um, in in uh, sorry in 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 your final grow. Yeah, in, yeah, yeah. So it's probably going to be closer to fifty five, like six. If you hit sixty uh, Fahrenheit and 50, uh, 55 relative humidity, if if your HVAC can handle that.
2: I could handle that. It's just yeah. maybe I'm putting too much focus when I'm going cold like that to VPD. Because yeah, that are. is a I, very that is a very low VPD. But that's that's sort of in
3: your last you know few days because it's just really prepping that plant to go into the dry room. And what's your dry room, at?
2: Uh, as close to 6060 60 as I can, you know.
3: Yeah. So I, I kind of like the idea that it just it's almost like a seamless transition from then, flower to harvest. Interesting.
1: interesting. Yeah. Well, so that's something about, sorry, Leighton, go for it. Yeah, just literally the last two days. And and I'm gonna share something else. There's a gentleman that I've been working with for years uh, out on the East Coast. I begged him to come on the show or other shows. And he's just not into it. Um, he has often talked about blowing VPD off, you know, as you're finishing the plant. Um, okay. He said he's he's actually had cultivars that he went way outside of range almost at the beginning of flower. I said two weeks into flower because mm-hmm. the plant was not responding the way it should have. So he just yeah. blew off VPD B- and went with what he saw as plant reaction and finished him that way. So there may be some truth to not stressing about that, especially in the last couple of days.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's a question that. I like to ask you guys, what do you guys think? Like, VPD is always is all about uh, maintaining uh, plant stomata, like uh, how how much it opens to really run your plant as efficient as it can, right? Um, that being said, I feel like uh, if you're running a, a higher temperature, let's say 82 uh, in mid flower, it's just kind of the standard to be in between a VPD of 1.2 and 1.5. So I always thought like, okay, well, if that's the standard, it's all, it's all obviously safe, you know, as far as molds. Um, so I've always, you um, Sort of seen following VPD as being uh, running your plant as efficiently as it could, but also being safe on the safer side. Am I wrong with that? Like if I go colder and I'm not following VPD. so let's say I'm running um, 60 degrees and 55 humidity is that just not necessarily maintaining the stomata where you would want it but it's still safe because it's a lower percentage of humidity yeah so so I feel I
3: feel very comfortable when your humidity is below 60 um once again it's very much like the water activity of your dried flower, right? So water activity is is just your internal relative humidity of your bud. And, yes. and so we want that lower humidity, lower than 60%, mainly because we know that that makes it more difficult for most pathogens to to uh, proliferate in, in that lower humidity. Um, and then um, in terms of temperature, for the most part, I, I always like, you know in the grow at least to be above 75 because we know that powdery mildew tends to be more successful at a lower temperature
2: right yeah but i've learned if from you run high years, temps like you're never going to get pm uh,
3: no i mean typically it's it's harder to to see pm in higher temperatures
0: yeah but, i agree yeah
3: but but i i've learned from so many growers who who grow you know, cause we would always recommend, and we probably told you the same 83 Fahrenheit at the top of the, you know, top of the canopy, but we know growers who are doing 79 and, and they feel like they get better uh, terpene production. Right. So okay. it's, it's, once again, I think a lot of VPD charts are based on one or two, you know, a few cultivars and, mm-hmm. um, and they're, they're generalizations. They're, they're good guidance tools, but uh You know, an experienced grower is is always way more knowledgeable than a piece of paper. So
2: totally. So so you're you're in the opinion that um, if you go colder, like 55 is always safe. I thought that that to maintain safety, you had to, to follow VPD. But you're saying not necessarily. It's more about the percentage, you know, because the relationship between the humidity and the ambient air and everything like changes so much with temperature, right? So, and,
3: and I'm I'm sure it 55, has to five.
2: You're 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 safe,
3: and and I'm I'm sure it has to do with with your um, uh, you know the biological activity within within the soil and and the and the physical structure of your soil, so that it can still pull up nutrients if it needs it, right? So you're not going to get that sure. calcium deficiency. You're not going to get that boron deficiency because even with a lower VPD you can still pull up some nutrients.
2: Yeah. My bottom line, you guys think it's safe at a lower VPD when you lower that temp? I uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Well I'll do it. I have two days left there. I'm just gonna lower those temps and keep it around 55 because I, I definitely can do that.
3: And then your light your lighting spectrum is the fall lighting spectrum. Is that uh
2: is um, it, you do that so or- so no, I just kept the same spectrum the whole time. I could try more of a fall thing, uh, like I said, just for the three remaining days, I did it today. And I just, um, there's like uh out of 600 watts, I think there's like 250 watts just dedicated, or don't quote me on that, it's probably 150 dedicated to red, uh, 660 nanometers. Um, so I dropped that down to zero. So dropping that down to zero obviously gives me a lower PPFD and a bluer type of spectrum. So I just figured why not, um, why not end flower
1: like that?
3: Yeah. And that makes sense.
1: Try it out. Yep. And, And you know what? I think, I think you're really onto something now with that preparing the plant because it's biomimicry of nature, right? The plant doesn't go from growing to you know in certain humidity and temperature being thrown into uh, another temperature another humidity so why not just wind it down and prep it for for that transition kind of like what would happen in nature right yeah i think you really something
2: something i've been thinking about a lot lately is um well is VPD okay And if you look at VPD VPD charts online, it's all about, you know, maintaining during flower that 1.2 to 1.5. And the vast majority of VPD charts are ambient room temperature based on that, okay? But then I've been discovering... That, uh, okay, well, first of all, I knew about the guys that would say, okay, don't go with the room temperature, go with the leaf temperature, right? So if your leaf temperature is two degrees lower, you just do your VPD based on that. So, okay, it's a little bit different, but that's all good. But then there's the whole other equation of room temperature, leaf temperature, you have uh, leaf uh, temp- leaf surface temperature and room temperature differential, and you take that differential in account, and you put um, room uh, uh, the room uh, humidity percentage um, in, in that whole equation, and then you come up with a VPD. Right. So if you're running two degree lower uh, leaf um, temperature than your room um, and you want to maintain end of flower one point five VPD and you're running around 80 percent at uh, 80 degrees Fahrenheit, you're going to have to be like at friggin forty seven percent. Right. So is 80 in this case, with a leaf temperature two degrees lower, okay, is 80 Fahrenheit and 47, 1.5? Or is 80 Fahrenheit and 60%, which is just based on room temperature, 1.5? What's your opinion on that?
3: <laughs> you know, and, and largely, as as you're describing that, um, you know, my a lot of my thought process when I saw those pictures on Instagram, I see your, your, your plants are absolutely praying, right? They look phenomenal. And and I'm sure you're not seeing a lot mm-hmm. of nutritional deficiencies, right? No. And so to me, there's something that's dialed in there. That's, that's you know, yes, if, if we had a, a cyclometric chart and mapped out what's going on in your room, it would be amazing because, you know, for the stage that they're at, they look, they look absolutely amazing. So
2: we're um, always looking to be more cutting edge. So,
3: yeah. And and that's (laughs) to me, it's it's when, when you feel like your plants aren't growing well, that's when you start turning back to your VPD and and start questioning whether you're, you're, you've got it dialed in the way you want it dialed in. Um, What, what I don't like to do is, is to go excessively, Low on on uh, relative humidity, uh, you know, because some people do. They they'll finish the rooms at forty percent, and in large part, they're they're fearing botrytis. There is a greater potential of getting downy mildew when you go that low. Um, but then there's that sort of like you're almost rehydrating the plant when it goes into your cure room because those people who are are um, finishing a room at around forty percent relative humidity True. are still curing at eight, at about sixty percent. Um, in their cure room. So that's where at times and, and if I don't know if you've ever had a crop that's failed in microbials in, in, and it, it failed because of your post-harvest, um, oftentimes you can uh, drop your humidity too quickly in, in your rooms and then you try to bring it back up. That's actually when you get a proliferation of, of microbes is, is when you when you start going back up in your relative humidity. Um, okay. and so, so you want to kind of stay away from that, uh, in that, so that's my thought process is, is try not to get too low in your relative humidity prior to mm-hmm. harvest.
2: But do you, would you guys go with leaf temperature and room temperature deferential to, 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 to determine VBD or would you? Yes, yeah.
1: yes I would, yeah. take, I would take the average because to be honest with you, but it's B- part, B- it's it's
2: it's more than an average latent. If you look into it, it's just like the more I think this is the way it works. Like the cooler your leaf temp is, okay, the hotter your plant is running. So there's <laughs> like there's it's not just going with an average. Uh, if you if you put it like in simulators online, there you see that it's way more than an average it's, I don't really get the equation, but it's, it's, it's more complicated than that.
1: Interesting. So this is someone's new version of, of reading to the next level of VPD. I don't know
2: if it's a new version or if it's just something that I always missed,
1: <laughs> you know, but.
2: So uh, to my
1: understanding VPD came out of the uh, greenhouse uh, 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 flower cut industry or not flower cut all greenhouse production correct? So it really didn't ever come from cannabis. And we all know cannabis is a pretty unique plant. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, you know, in my, in my mind, first of all, backing up a little bit further, I agree with Av 100%. Like, you never want to rehydrate that plant. You're just asking for shit. Biomimicry of nature is just slowly down to where it would have naturally cured on the plant. And the best way to do that is by trying to just slow it, slow it down. So that when it goes into dry and then insecure, you're mm-hmm. you're not playing with anything other than other than allowing the plant to naturally uh, permeate and and you know um, settle in or or I want to use the word ferment although I was uh, last time we had uh, Madame Canole on she said you can't use the word ferment well and honestly you can use the word ferment because ferment can be aerobic as well as anaerobic there are methods to doing that. Um, and, and the muncha guys prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt. So that being said, you want that plant to naturally ferment out all of those compounds and unique properties that are going to start happening as as the plant cures. And that goes into the next question is, you know, beyond the VPD stuff, what is your curing like? What, what is your cure process? Because I've heard so many different ways. And there is such a huge difference in in what I want to say really well cured plant and people that, that cure their plant think that it's cured.
2: Yeah. um, A lot of trial and error was put into my curing and uh, I'm pretty happy with what I'm doing right now. Um, So just, just to challenge a little bit what you were saying about putting your plant from your grow and then into your cure room. And uh, by the way, I think that calling it a cure room is absolutely the right way to describe it. It's not a dry room. okay. If you dry your weed, you could put it in the microwave maybe or something. Curing is controlled drying, right? So you put it in the cure room and what happens is my cure room, um, I have plants from the ceiling to right above the ground. My my whole room is full, full, full. And it's almost like a jar, right? Like people burp jars, right? And I'm against burping. Okay. Sorry if I offend anyone, but uh, I don't burp weed. Uh, I cure weed. Um, so when, when that room is so, so full, if you want to achieve 60% right away, I find that the, the plant is sweating so much humidity. So if you crank dehumidifiers to the point where you reach that 60% right away, you're pulling too much room. You're burping your jar too much. And in the first, um, let's say 24 to 36 hours, um, if you just run your D too much and you're obsessed at achieving that 60% right away, you're, you're pulling too much water actively out of your buds and you're gonna, you're gonna cut down your dry time pretty significantly, like really significantly. Um, so I kind of see it as the first 24 and if you want to challenge me, like go ahead because you know, I'm always up to learning, but, um, if you, what I like to do, okay, is I like to, to see um, my data chart going, going, um, sorry, I can't see my hand, going gradually downwards in 36 hours and reaching that 60%. Um, so I'm just like gradually putting, pulling water out of the plant, out of the room, not too aggressively. Um, and think about this, okay? Think about if you had a huge cure room and you just put one plant in that whole thing, okay? And your cure room was pretty stabilized at sixty sixty. Think of the different uh, sort of process going on in with that only one plant in uh, 60-60 versus that room jam-packed and trying to reach sixty sixty, right? So in the scenario number one, where it's just hanging at sixty sixty, it's just slowly acclimatizing to, to that room's VPD or that room's uh, temperature humidity. But when it's jam packed and you're trying to achieve sixty sixty, no matter what, the the you're pulling a lot of moisture out. And where is that moisture coming from? It's coming direct from those buds. You know, so you're forcing a lot of moisture to just come out of those buds. Um, So anyway, my my whole curing philosophy is about 36 hours I'm comfortable with gradually going down from, let's say, like 80 percent gradually to 60 and then just keeping it to 60. And that's the way that I can achieve like a nice like 14 to 16 day cure
0: well i think we're gonna have am to I get John fellow on because he's actually writing a book uh, exactly on this topic about uh, curing the length of time the vpd in the room um etc but we do have a couple of questions guys if you want to do the questions real quick
2: before the questions uh, am i crazy no like that, you're, I,
0: that 36 I, hours I, I
3: think i think mm-hmm. you're bang on with that you could reduce that 36 if in your pre-harvest, you're closer to 60 and 60 to start with, right? Yeah. that That's all I'm saying. But if, yeah. if you're coming in and you're leaving cool. your room at, say, 75 uh, or, um, you know, a higher temperature and you're bringing it down, yeah, you're going to probably have a lot more moisture and you're going to, you want to, but to me, 36 hours is fine. Uh, you might yeah. find that it's and then
2: And then after that, okay. The, the dehu kicks on when the humidity is a little too low. It brings it down. So guess what? I'm kind of burping my room yeah. for 14 to 16 days. And then it fully settles with the room's uh, temperature humidity. And then my, my product is cured. I never want to cut the cure before it's done, seal it up, and then try my chances to, to perfectly burp that stuff. You're you're not gonna achieve anything. <laughs> are you Are you guys like all about burping weed?
3: <laughs> I, I'm all about using bovida or, or Grove bags. So keep-
2: I find I, I find that if you can achieve stabilize your cannabis at the proper VPD and then you seal it. I don't see why you would add any any bovida or whatever else that's just again my opinion but anyway
1: the guy in in Rhode Island that that pay, gives me weed or pays me weed his cures are by far the best i've ever okay. fucking had and i think he's a lot along the lines of what you're doing cuz he he again does he's not putting them in jars and burping them, he's curing them first. And then yes. when they're ready, then he uh, puts them in into the jars yeah. for, for sale. I, I believe I believe in aging a little bit. Okay.
2: After it's cured, you uh you um you seal it up and definitely letting it age is gonna smoothen it out and bring out some flavors, no doubt. But I think that aging is different than curing.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah.
2: And we, we can and vacuum seal, um, I put it uh, before I v- vacuum seal it, uh, it. While I'm trimming uh, the SOPs, is that it goes into into airtight totes, but then yeah, it's vacuum sealed. Uh, and I do, I do like when I pull my 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 uh, crop down, I don't buck the the i don't buck the um, the the buds off i keep them on the stem sealed in totes until it's hand trimmed it's hand trimmed on the branches because i don't want any manipulation of the buds and then when it's all uh, trimmed on the vine then it's carefully bucked off and sealed Boom. So there's never any manipulation of trichomes. Um, you know, you asked me once, like, how much keef do you collect? None, basically, like next to none, because we don't manipulate the flower. It's like immaculate, and that's another thing I I, I really dislike about messing around. With uh, with burping stuff, you're rolling around uh, buckets. You're you're breaking off trichomes. Uh, you're exposing your weed to oxygen over and over. Like, I'm really passionate about it because. I wasted so much time of my life burping weed, <laughs> <laughs> and that now I feel liberated. That I'm. <laughs>
1: <playing>. <laughs> All right. Well, well. Thank okay, you. For we, we can that. do questions. Sorry. Sorry. No, we're gonna get. We're gonna get deeper into some of this shit the next time. So we okay. got. We're gonna have another whole two hours to do this. Um,
2: let's do it in the shop. With the yes. Person.
1: Exactly. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Ken. What do you got?
0: Okay, how long does uh, mycorrhizae fungal network survive after harvest, or does it already exist when you plant a new plant um, on old root zones?
1: All right, so there's been expen- extensive work done on this. Um, it takes 90 days to complete what I want to call colonization, where the mycorrhizae has a food source in the sand, soil, and clay that it can mine, and has the association with the plant. So if, you're, if you are growing in pots and you're using mycorrhizae products and throwing away your soil, you're wasting your money. In a bed system, as long as you don't remove the root ball, that fungi will still be able to pull nutrients out of that plant and exchange them with other plants that are present. Again, why it's so important to never let your soil go bare. In nature, soil is not bare. Soil always has something growing on it. Um, so as long as you're maintaining some level of plant life in that system uh, throughout the year, or like if you're in a tent in the winter and then you go outside in the summer, maintain that tent with some kind of plants. Otherwise, you're, you're losing all of the ability to have that association when you're planting the plant. You want a really quick connection. I, I go so far as to tell people, roll your seeds in it. And then plant them so that they've already got a little established network when you transplant them or when you put the pot on top of the bed. That way you're you're jump starting it. You're you're connecting within 24 to 36 hours of the existing network that's already in the bed.
0: Okay. Ab, you have anything to add to that? No, I, I think that's
3: brilliant. I, I love that idea of rolling your seeds in, in the bed prior to uh, seeding out.
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, so the next one is uh, what's the right source of molybdenum, um, and the person's been using um, multi mino
1: Is it is it multi amino or multi mino And who's who's the product prescribed? Can you uh, can you add to the comment who whose uh, branding that is? Because that's interesting to know. Um, there are there's a lot of molybdenum sources out there. I tend to tell people to go toward the ph- pharmaceutical industry. Research and development companies that have malignium, because it tends to be a lot purer.
0: Okay, well, we're waiting for an answer uh, from Prescribed Burn. Uh, we have you need malignium to achieve the highest form of plant health. Uh, you can't reach the top of the plant health pyramid without it. And that's coming from uh, John Kemp. So I don't know if that's the truth or not.
1: I would trust that man. And we got <laughs> to. It- we got to get him on the show at some point.
0: Okay. And uh, prescribed hasn't come back with anything yet. So uh, those were the only questions that uh, we had. Now, Lily did point out that um, when I met uh, uh, Kevin Joggery for the first time, I brought uh, some of my sour diesel and I had uh, stuff that was a year cured and a year and a half cured. Um, he took the uh, year cure as a better um nose and he really enjoyed that and it was a year and a half uh cure in gamma sealed uh pails mm. uh, but again,
2: I, though, like i would say if you want to be fussy about it i would say a
0: year aged right yes, yes a year aged and uh yes prescribed burn we're trying to answer your uh, your question um the right source of m- malignium, and we we're asking uh, what your source was for the uh, multi mino?
3: You know, and I think this whole um, curing or aging process, um, I think it, it will really tie in quite nicely to Dan Kittridge if we if he joins us next week, because we know that the higher the bricks levels, the the longer the shelf life of of products. So um, you're doing something right in the grow to to allow for you to have oh that.
1: from from Bioag go yeah. with it I trust I trust Faust uh, exclusively mm. whatever he's putting out he does the work man
2: yeah and by the way like for the whole curing thing um, what what I'm doing right now really works well and I'm really happy but I'm the kind of guy that's always open-minded to changing my opinions on things so you know well
0: I know that John uh, he's saying 65 uh, humidity. And then when it's actually packaged and the person gets it, it's going to come out of the package at 60. So, and he's got that meter that tests it. So
2: I'll tell you what, though, that's a a big challenge being a grower and determining actual um, room humidity. Right. So if you say you prefer uh, being at 65, are you really at 65? How do you know that? Um, and I'm still trying to dial in, dial that in. I have several humidity meters. I have meters that can be calibrated. I calibrate them and there's a lot of discrepancies. So, you know, I do my best, but, uh, you, you can easily go to Home Depot, let's say and get two two different brands and be like completely off on percentage. Yeah. Right. So I'm not using Home Depot brand. I'm using um, higher end stuff, but still there's discrepancies. So it's honestly hard to say, like, I prefer being at 62. Let's say, well, to to really know that you're exactly at 62, as far as I'm concerned, you have to drop like eight, 10 grand on a meter.
0: Yeah. And that's what he has. And he actually, uh, he's not just, looking at the the temperature and humidity in the room he's taking the bud itself putting it in the meter to see what's inside the bud and that's where he's getting his his numbers from but that's like i think yeah. a well 5, that's another big
2: challenge in in uh humidity percentage too is that when you send your bud to determine moisture content there's big big uh discrepancies um yeah. in, in, in different labs Um, And you you'll even ask a lab like is that um, is that precise and the answer is no, like the only way to really know how much moisture there is in your bud is um, you have to, to really be set up in a lab and you have to be able able to vape out everything from the bud, but then in that vapor you have to be able to separate all the the cannabinoids and terpenes and other compounds that vape off and just uh determine exactly what actual water came out of the bud and then you can determine uh humidity percentage of your of your flower and no cannabis labs in canada that i know uh, about go to that extent so even like by, by lab testing anyway, your flower, you can't determine really where you're at as far as humidity percentage uh, or moisture content. I mean, Um, so that's another challenge, man. So I guess you, you would have to go by feel in the case that
0: you're talking about. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. We're going to have to have John on, uh, on the soil matters and and talk about this specific topic because like, He's been doing this research and with Bovidae. I, I was at his house. We opened a freezer in his basement. He had stuff in there that was over eight year, eight or 10 years old with Bovida in it because um, he's Whoa. been doing testing with them for a decade or over a yeah. decade, right? So, yeah, he's one guy that actually uh, he has a lot more information than most of us because he's been doing the testing for that long.
2: Yeah. 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 But it's a yeah, it's a like bottom line. I think that if you want to be testing for your your moisture, send it out to a to a lab and test moisture act um, water yeah. activity.
0: Yeah, that's more of a precise
2: precise accurate thing, and yeah. at least that tells you if you're in a range that's safe for microbial and fungal growth in your in your bud, yeah. right? Yeah, um, and so that's the big I worry. Would, yeah. So yeah. as far as determining, uh, my percentage in my cure room, um, it was a lot of trial and error and comparing a lot of different meters. And I found somewhere that I thought gave me a really good product that I yeah. was happy with.
0: Right. And it's so, all about it's when I get your product and I pull it out of the packaging, is it dry or is it at that right to moisture content for it to smoke properly? And that's, that's the real key isn't what you're seeing in your room. It's what your consumer is getting at the other end.
2: Yeah, well, that's the big thing about the whole yeah. packaging. We could talk about that a lot too. Yeah, yeah <laughs> we'll
1: get into eight. that next time. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Okay, Love guys. It. Well, we're over the two hours, and I know Av likes to jump off right away because he's got a wife that's going to beat him with a two by four if he doesn't get off on time. So, <laughs> I just yeah. want to say thanks so much, Tom. I,
3: I, we talked uh, about four hours ago to say, "Hey, can you jump on a call?" and and you were quite willing to do it. So, thank you so much for that. Yeah. And I look so My forward pleasure. to to getting a tour um, on our next on our next visit.
2: Yeah, let's do it. Hey, maybe maybe it's gonna be like during the time that I build the beds for my new room too. You 20, know, maybe you'll get
3: volunteers to help you.
2: Yeah, yeah. There you go. Yes. There you People go. are actually like really into it to help because there a lot of guys like wanted to learn. You know, wanted to yeah. see it done
1: in real life. You know, so yeah. I bet they're all proud of it now that they see what's coming out of there. Yeah, <laughs> am right. Yeah. Love okay, it. Okay,
0: guys. Uh, anybody have anything coming up that they want to talk about quick before we jump?
1: No, I think I'm good. But Tom, again, thank you so much for popping yeah. off, you know, and and so quickly coming on the show for two hours. I know it's a big commitment and it's uh, it's a lot of time. So I'm much appreciated, my friend. Thank my you. My pleasure. Matt. I thank you
2: guys because I watch every every uh, podcast you guys do, and uh, you're my main source of of of, of learning. You know, so uh, really, it's me that thank you. And, like, please do keep
0: doing this. Uh, I love it. Thanks so much, Doc. Thank you. It it took Lily to convince Leighton to to come back out of retirement (laughs) from FCP. And and she wouldn't let him go, okay? No way.
1: Hey, you take some of the blame, too. You guys tag-teamed the shit out of me.
0: <laughs> oh, no. I'm a nice
1: guy, Layden. Honest. <laughs> and, Ken, thanks for all your hard work behind the scenes, sir. I much oh, appreciate Oh, thank it. you. And Even my appreciation
0: eat? for Tom, too. So Yeah. My all pleasure. right.
1: Peace out, everybody. Thanks,
0: everyone. Okay. Peace. Bye, guys. Take care. We'll see you next time. And hopefully... We have uh, uh, the guy that was supposed to be on today on next week with Dan Kittrich. Hopefully, yep. we'll
1: have to see. Awesome. So anyway. Bye, guys.